Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Christine Leach, an art critic with the Sunday Times. She's written for the newspaper for nearly 20 years and she's also a regular contributor to radio and television arts programmes. Her mother is an artist, meaning that Christine spent much of her childhood in galleries, which naturally planted the seeds for her future career as an arts critic journalist. She initially did a BA in French and English in UCC and then an MA in journalism in DCU. After a stint in news journalism, she moved to RTE's online service eventually becoming the editor of their arts, culture and entertainment output and she then moved to the Sunday Times. She's been shortlisted for Critic of the Year in the News Brands Ireland Journalism Awards and been writer in residence for the Hearsay International Audio Arts Festival. She's just published a memoir about how writing and art can be used as a means of escape and it's called Negative Spaces. Now Christine, we'll get back to the book shortly but I'm intrigued by the fact that you're an art critic journalist. What is that? It's actually a really particular practice um, and it's something I chose. Um, So art critics who produce journalism are different to art critics who write from, say, an art history background or within an academic context or something like that. So, uh, as you said, I did a master's in journalism after my primary degree and I was coming at this work from a journalist point of view. So it's very interesting um, to think about why would you put writing about visual art into mainstream media? Because that's basically the choice I was making. Newspapers, radio, um, and when I joined RTE in the beginning, it was the very fledgling days of the internet. So that was their the RTE's online service. Um, and I really pushed when I was in there for an arts um, section on the website to expand that, you know, so it wasn't just news and sport and business. Um, so, yeah, it's a particular practice. I chose it because I think... Um, Well, journalism's in my blood and we might Mm. talk about that um, a bit later. But also, I'm really interested in who who are you talking to? Mm -hmm. Um, If you're writing, who's the writing for? Um, And because I grow up surrounded by art, surrounded by making of art, going to look at art and surrounded by books about art, um, I was always very interested in that kind of communication. Like, who is the writing for? Who is the art for? And I was aware as well when I was growing up that a lot of people didn't think galleries were for them. People felt like they couldn't go past the door. Whereas for me... Every time I walk into a gallery, I feel like I'm at home. It just feels like a natural place to be. Were you trying to educate people then about the accessibility of art? In a way, maybe yes, although I didn't really think about it that way. I was thinking about opening it up. So I think some types of writing, especially within specialist areas, closes access to meaning down because it uses specialist language. So within journalism, your job is to turn something that could be very specialist into something that anybody with a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning can read about. That's your job as a journalist, right? So it's about breaking down that specialist language and opening up meaning, opening up access to information and sharing it. You know, that's what journalism does. It shares it with a wider group of people. So um, I think I was interested in that 
that, getting more people to feel like art is for them, getting more people to feel like maybe their own encounter with an artwork is as valid as anybody else's encounter with Mm -hmm. an artwork. And that sounds kind of didactic. But then the other thing is I'm really interested in difficult writing, as in, you know, how do you put words on something that's visual? How do you do that in a way that's engaging? How do you do it? How do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, well, just to say, I'm sure I don't always succeed at doing it. But when... Um, I think the other thing is I started reading critics as well and I got really interested in like how do they do it when they do it well how do critics like Robert Hughes um, you know Peter Sheldahl and when I moved to Dublin to do my masters I was reading the Sunday Times Culture magazine which I ended up writing for and Dorothy Walker was writing in there Um and she was one of the pers- first, you know, really competent public voices engaging the public around visual art and looking at things that were challenging. So it's abstract, but can we still talk about it in a way that makes people feel like it's for them, you know? So I got interested in the history of all of that, becoming maybe part of that. Um, and yeah, I've kind of described this before to people as the prickly practice of art criticism. Mm. And it's a curious thing because everybody wants the critic to like them and their work, but nobody necessarily really likes the critic (laughs) it's a really interesting position to occupy so it's journalism it's about art but it's also criticism which is a particular type cultural criticism you know how do you balance the subjective and the objective then when it comes to that yeah and I talk about that a little bit in the book as well I think I realised after a number of years and I started when I was quite young. So in 2003, when I started writing for the Sunday Times, I was still in my 20s. And of course, in your 20s, you think you know everything mm-hmm. as well. So you have that sort of bombastic sort of idea that you have authority, which you unlearn as you go along because you realise the things you don't know. Um but I think, um, what was the question again? <laughs> so in terms of the subjective and the yes. objective, because okay. a lot of people would see art as quite subjective, but you need to be objective in your writing. Yeah. And so that's why the practice of doing it as journalism is interesting, because journalism is supposed to stand back and give you the facts. That's what journalism does. You don't put yourself in the story. Right. But if you're a cultural critic, whether you're writing about film or music or theatre or art or books, um, you have to have some kind of personal response to it in order to produce an interesting, engaging response for the audience. So it's a balance. And I think part of what's happened throughout my career and in terms of my writing and where this book has really emerged from as well has been me going on a journey of understanding how to maybe use the journalism skills but um, not feel bound by them all the time. Mm. So journalism itself has changed in those 20 years very much. You know, it's become more personality driven. Journalists are more accessible online. Um, There is a blurred boundary between personal and private life which I think the pandemic absolutely blew open because people were literally broadcasting from their sheds or their living rooms you know people who had these professional veneers as journalists suddenly you could see they had maybe a kid in the background or, or a pet or something you know so something around what happened during the pandemic also shifted in terms of my ideas of how much of myself to put into the writing or not so I talk in the book about how journalism has rules you don't put yourself into the story mm-hmm. but I did realise as I was honing that practice, I suppose, of writing about art, that unless I had a very personal response, I probably wasn't going to be able to do that thing, which is to open up the meaning so that other people can have a personal response too, you know. So I did do a bit of lecturing and I have done some lecturing around the practice of what I call critical journalism. So it's criticism as journalism. So um, And not just necessarily in the arts side. Is that what you lectured in? Yeah. So it could be, I mean, it could be food writing. It could be, you know, so it's this idea of 
something that's judging because criticism has to judge. It has to give you like, you know, I mean, you know, nowadays the media kind of puts it down to, you know, how many stars out of five, yes. right? Which is a yes. very blunt instrument for it. Was this a good book? Oh, five out of five stars, you know? And was this a good film? But, you know, it's actually much more nuanced than that, as we all know, you know? Um, so I think, you know, journalism has squashed the amount of space that we give to this type of pure criticism. You know, music criticism, you know, it's it's gone into specialist publications again now, which means that less general readers are reading it. And again, we have this thing about what the internet has done to publishing, you know, so people are are self-curating the stuff they're interested in. And in the past, you might read an entire newspaper and come across the review of an exhibition. And you might be reading, you know, some a sports report or something about something that happened in the doll and the headline might catch you. And you might end up reading about an exhibition without thinking, oh, I'm a person who goes to exhibitions. So I'm always trying in my journalism to catch that person who might think this isn't for me, you know, and try and tell a story. So that's where that comes from. The other thing I was going to say about the teaching was in order to teach this, I had to understand where I was coming from. So, um, say, critics like John Berger, they would have said they were interested in the moment of of um, of the concept, the moment of creation. So they were very interested in, he was very interested in um, what the artist was doing in the studio. Like, what's happening here? What is the artist intending? And I realised when I looked back at the body of work that I had and the things that made me excited about writing about art was, I'm interested in the moment of encounter. I'm really interested in trying to write a story about what happens when you stand in front of this painting or walk around this sculpture or watch this film or listen to this music or whatever it is. So for me, the kind of... um, the, the impetus behind the writing is about trying to articulate the moment of encounter. And that you cannot do by being completely objective. You mm-hmm. have to be yourself having the encounter, right? So again, it's a really curious sort of seesaw between those two things. Are there many art critic journalists in Ireland? There aren't a lot. Um, and I became the president of the Irish branch of the Arts Critics Association, which is an international body. Um, I think last year, we've all lost track of the years so <laughs> during, yeah. during one of those Zoom meetings. Um, and there's a great practice, uh, there's a great tradition, you know, um, of writing about art, especially journalistic art criticism. Like you can look back and even in Ireland, there's a fantastic tradition of it. You know, the newspapers would have always given space to it. Um, it's changed over time. The Sunday Times, which is the paper paper I write for gives a lot of of colour space actually to pure criticism, which is rare because, you know, some of it is to do with, you know, clicks and eyes and viewers and everything. And so there's been a move towards maybe commissioning a piece that might be an interview or a more lifestyle piece or a studio visit, for example, which would be that other type of, of looking at art. You know, what did the artist intend? What were they doing? What's their working space like? What is their background? So when I go to exhibitions to write art criticism, a piece of art criticism, I don't talk to the artist at all. I you only just, look at the work. Really? Yeah. And when I started, I used to read the press releases and do all that stuff. And now I don't. I look at that afterwards for the facts if I need them, because your journalism needs facts as well. <laughs> but um, but no, I try to go in completely raw and have an encounter with the work. Did you find it coloured your view if you had too much information beforehand? Definitely. And when you start out as a journalist, too, you're kind of thinking, how will I fill this page? You know, you know, when you're <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, I've got a thousand words and, and I don't know enough. So I've got to gather. So I used to read all the catalogue essays and do, and do put a lot more research in. And of course, it's always been a freelance job, too. So just to point out, like you get the same 
amount of pay for your feature, no matter how much time you put into writing it. So one of the good things about having a prolonged practice that's been durational for me over nearly two decades is that I've gotten faster at it. Mm-hmm. I know what I need to do to get the story. I know why I'm writing the piece. Um, so what I do now is, and, and I did this from the very beginning, but I used to sort of do a lot more preparation. I go and encounter the work because I've been looking for a long time. It might be an artist whose work I've seen many times before. It might be new work, but I might have seen their work five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, so I have that context, which is already just with me. Um, if anybody in the gallery tries to talk to me while I'm there, I try to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Really? I don't want the gallery assistant telling me about the work. I don't want How the... do you do that without being rude? Oh, I know. They probably think I am rude. Well, I used to go in and just, well, I wouldn't tell anybody I was coming. <laughs> so, with a hat and glasses yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go in on a Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. when there's no one else there. Um yeah, I think um, over the years, people have probably learned not to talk to me. They come up and they say, do you need anything? Have you got mm. the press release? You know, all of that. And that's their job, of course. That's why they're doing it. Um, or do you want to talk to the artist? And I mean, I would just say now, well, that would be a different piece. If I'm talking to the artist, I'm doing an interview and that's a different type of journalism. What I'm doing here is a piece of criticism. And so if I have questions that the artist can only answer, then of course mm. I'll ask them. But It's also for me a kind of like magic trick if you can manage to write something meaningful about the work without, you know, asking everyone else's opinion about it, you know, to have this sort of interesting encounter of your own with the piece. And strangely, artists have contacted me afterwards and said, how did you know that about my work or how did you write that? Because I didn't know that anyone would see that in it. And it wasn't even in the press release. How you interpreted it. Well, I always say it's because you put it in there yeah, and I spend true. a long time looking. So I don't, you know, I spend a long, long time just looking and I write the stream of consciousness notes in my notebook. That is my, um, that's how I do it. And the other reason somebody coming up to me in the gallery is a problem is it interrupts that flow of mm-hmm. me just having a response to the work. So um, it almost takes me out of that mode. And it's wonderful because especially now, like when I started, there were no smartphones. You know, I was on a dial up sending in my copy, you know, um, <laughs> there was no Google, you know, there was no Instagram. Um, we have access to so many images now, like I can find out what an artist was doing 10 years ago, five years ago, last week, really quickly by looking at their Instagram. None of that existed before. Um, and one of the things that's still wonderful is the thing that's the same for me over all this time. The phone's in the pocket. Everything is off. The outside world disappears. I'm just looking at the work and I'm writing things down in my notebook. And for me, that's an amazing type of grounding thing. Now, like as I say in the book, not all of those notes end up in the article because that's me not censoring myself. Mm-hmm. I'm just writing my response, you know. It just helps you focus. It It's like a, it's like a... I mean, people talk about flow states now, you know, Um, I guess it's that kind of thing um, where you're just doing one thing. You're not doing lots of things. I'm a multitasker, so I do a lot of things at once. When I'm looking at art with my notebook, that's all I'm doing. And are you like that then when you're writing? Yeah, I do go into a zone. When my kids were small, I used to set an alarm to remind myself to pick them up from school. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I'd be in a zone Um, and I wouldn't know what time it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I'm writing, I do that. And the writing (laughs) began really early at the age of eight and you won a competition for the RTE Guide. I know, it's a funny story to tell. And I wasn't the only kid who won this now, I have to say. Um, The RTE Guide ran this competition. I was eight, yeah. My mum... Uh, got me to enter. Uh, I wrote a review of James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. Oh, really? That was the yeah. book 
that it was, I remember. Um, and I won. And I was one of a number of kids who were then given a job for a period of months where we were sent books to review. And they appeared in the in the kids' books page of the RT Guide, which was like an amazing 1980s Ireland. I was living in rural Ireland. You know, this was like the RT Guide was in everyone's house. Absolutely. And there was my name. And I was reviewing these books. And of course, I was getting free books. And I was a huge reader. So this was absolutely brilliant to me, you know. Um, but it was also really difficult because the first um, review that I wrote and I describe it in the book was really difficult for me to get down on paper. Like I was really anxious about it. Why? Um, I think it's because I attach such importance to words and I have from a very young age. I could read before I started school. So I was reading books when I was kind of three. And by the time I was in senior infants, I was reading big books like, you know, the whole of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, like the big hardback books, um, you know, Secret Garden, all these books, you know, and um, and they just, I don't know, I, I think like a lot of kids who read young, I just attached huge importance to stories, narrative words and the idea that this was a whole world that could exist in your head, you know. And that stayed with you, obviously, Absolutely. all the way through and I'm sure through yeah. the, the journalism career. But when did you start thinking about writing outside of the day job, outside of the journalism? Yeah, so when, let me see, I think my attitude, so so what I will say is I was always doing this writing. So a lot of the writing that's in the book is writing that was already on my laptop. It was on my phone. It was in notebooks. But I wasn't that's intending... That stream of consciousness. That stream of consciousness and also the pieces about what was going on in my life. So um, the different things that were happening in my personal life. I suppose... I kept diaries when I was younger. I don't really keep diaries now, but I write to explain the world to myself. And that isn't just art, you know, and I write to unravel my feelings, to figure out my feelings, to put words on my feelings in a way to help me put them down somewhere. So a lot of what's in the book is material that existed, but I wasn't intending to publish it. You know, it It wasn't for you. It was just for me. Yeah. 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 So how did it end up in print then? Yeah, so (laughs) that comes back to the importance of art criticism and my kind of campaigning around the idea that, you know, we need more visibility for art criticism. So I had been trying for a number of years to get a compilation of my previously published criticism published um, in book form. And I'd approached a number of of Irish publishers and and really the feeling within Irish publishing over that period of time was that there just wouldn't be enough readers for it. You know, there just wasn't a financial model to publish this. But this genre of book exists, especially in the States. You know, a lot of critics who write, say, for, for Time magazine or, you know, The New Yorker would publish compilations. And so those things exist as, you know, records of published art criticism, but also a way of accessing lots of different types of art through writing about that art. So I was looking to publish something like that. I had spoken to Irish Academic Press and they were very interested in it. Um, And then we went away from that idea again. And and again, it was like, well, you know, what would be the financial model for this? So I had started writing personal essays and I'd been writing fiction, which I hadn't been publishing, but I had pieces published in the Winter Papers Journal. And then I went back to, you know, how will I get this book of criticism published? You know, how will I do it? And I had read a book by Ruth Reichel, who is a food writer um, in New York. She's written three memoirs, I think. And the one that I had read years ago was called Garlic and Sapphires. And it was about how she used to wear a disguise to go to do her restaurant reviews (laughs) because there was a photo of her in every kitchen. So she got different service when she turned up to eat the meal. And she realised that she wasn't being a proper critic if she wasn't being treated like everyone else, you know. So again, that's like me not wanting to talk to anyone in the gallery. Um, So she started wearing disguises 
she employed a friend of hers to actually get wigs, prosthetics, proper makeup, different clothes, changed her accent. And the book is about how what happened to her psychologically in terms of her relationship with these characters. So I was interested in this idea of like, who is the critic? Like, who is this person? What's going on psychologically with this person? Where are they coming from? What's their background? And and, and that's me. I'm the critic, right? Mm-hmm. So I went back to talk to Conor Graham, um, who's the publisher. And we had a Zoom call and I said to him, I have an idea for a new structure for this book. I would write personal essays that would be published in parallel with some of the published criticism, which is the journalism. And it would give insight into who is the critic, like what was going on in my life when I was seeing this work. Um, And we discussed that a bit further and he was saying, well, look, that's really interesting. But what about if that wasn't the structure? What about if it was eight essays? So this book was actually originally commissioned as eight personal essays. And it's not a very big book. It's about 40,000 words. Um, And when I sat down to write it, um, I guess it it turned into a memoir. I was going to say, what, how would you describe it? Is it a memoir? I do think it is a memoir, but for me, it still reads as eight essays as well. I want it to be possible to read it as eight essays. And, the, you know, people say, well, how did you write it? Or, you know, what what kind of... Like, for me, if I understand the shape of the thing, then I can make it happen. So I spent more time thinking about what shape should this be? What's the tone of voice of it? What should be in here and what should not be in here? Like, what to leave out is as important. Um, and I wanted to write something that wasn't chronological so the book is not linear it doesn't tell a story from start to finish it jumps around in time and the way that I came up with the structure with the titles for the chapters which are writing and seeing sounding um I mean it might sound strange but what I thought about was the book as an album so I really yeah so I thought you know um I wanted to be able to repeat things about the story, like a beat that repeated. And when you're writing journalism, you're not allowed to repeat yourself. You put the fact <laughs> in here and you can't have the fact in further down. So I thought about it as an album of eight tracks. OK, and I wasn't writing an album at all. But um, I realised that when somebody writes an album, they sometimes tell the same story in each of the eight songs. And the album is like the bigger picture when you've listened to all eight of the songs. So for me, it was like if I can write each of these eight chapters as if they were tracks on an album and in terms of the way, the structure of it, because it's quite fragmentary, it jumps around. There are different types of writing in it. Um, I was thinking about how do I keep hitting a certain beat? So there are things that happen in my life which impacted on how I was writing um, and I wanted to sort of hit on those things again, like moments of anxiety, things to do with how we see things, things to do with what's said and unsaid um, things to do with moments of really not seeing what's going on around you you know um, and that was the structure that allowed me to make it this way And so. how did you so you've eight essays as we said yeah. writing, seeing, listening sounding, sinking breaking healing and home and I love I love the names of, of, of the chapters as such but how did you sequence them then? Had you planned that beforehand or did did it naturally come together like the album when they were all done? Well literally the nuts and bolts of it is post-its. Right. <laughs> so, so here's what happened. I as I said, had all this material in various places. I had my notes, I had my things, notes to myself, things I was writing myself, things that were on my phone, things that were in notebooks, things that had been published as well. Um, I sat down and the titles of the chapters came to me first. And again, that was kind of like me thinking about 
songs. <laughs> so the titles came first. Now, the chapter that's called Sounding actually had a different title and anyone who got the proof copy of the book will have seen it was called um, Opening Slash Shutting Up. Um, and we changed it to make them read a little more smoothly. But actually, I think Sounding is a better title for that chapter um, because it comes between listening and sinking. And sounding is making a sound, but sounding is also measuring depth in the water mm, so yeah. and the sinking one is about water and swimming and floating um, so yeah I had the titles and I gathered the material and I basically I, I, I literally had like those eight documents open and I was pulling things in and I was writing things like story about this this here this chunk of writing here this piece of thing here this exhibition I saw here and I was pulling them into those places then I ended up with um too much material mm-hmm. as you would as do always, yeah. as you would do and then I cut 10,000 words out of it and um, and then I thought well what have I got here and I moved I, that was the kind of so then I sat down I took si- six weeks off writing published journalism so I didn't have any deadlines for six weeks and I took that document which was at that point about 50,000 words um, and I shaped it into those eight chapters. Now, some of it I did by moving things like saying, well, this anecdote, actually, it works here, but it also might serve the shape better over here. Um, and then after it was it was sent off, um, they came back and said, you know, this reads like a memoir because I had sent it off as eight essays. This reads like a memoir. And if it was a memoir, are there some things that you would change? And just practically speaking, I rewrote the first chapter with the knowledge of what it was now. Because when I first wrote the first essay, the first chapter, I didn't actually know where I was going. Mm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So the first chapter had the most um, editing or redrafting, I would say. And the last chapter also had some redrafting. And that was done over Christmas. So the co- the 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 book was the manuscript was sent in on the 15th of November just gone and re- did that redrafting over Christmas um, and then I worked with a copy editor so um, so it got on the shelf quite quickly then really fast so when I say to you I, I wasn't intending to write a memoir and I didn't even really know it was a memoir until I'd finished writing it I mean this time last year I didn't really know I was writing a book so you know so it's very fast and I know in publishing that's really fast yeah are you happy with it? I'm really, yes, I am. And I'm really pleased with the shape of it. Um, I was definitely nervous about putting it out into the world because it's very personal. It's not, And it is very personal. And that's yeah. what I wanted to talk to you about because there are a huge amount of intimate insights into, into your life. How did you, why I suppose firstly did you focus on that and then how did you do it? Ooh. I don't know if I can answer how I did it. Somebody who read the book really fast. Now, so a lot of people have read it in one sitting and it's not a big book, so you can do that. Um, I've had loads of messages from people who read it in one sitting, but somebody who read it really fast told me she read it in 45 minutes. Oh, jeepers, that was very I quick. said, wow, you must be a speed reader. And she said, it felt to me like you wrote it in a fever dream. And I thought that was an interesting um, it was an interesting thing to say about it because to me it didn't feel like writing it in a fever dream but I get why it feels like that because it has momentum it um, it goes into those anxious places um, yeah I and really I actually wrote it very methodically and I, I, I thought very hard about what to put in and not put into the book because it is personal Um but one of the amazing things, and it hasn't even been in the world that long, but an awful lot of people have contacted me privately to say, you put words on my experience. Really? Yeah. And I've been really surprised um, just to hear people say, well, you know, one of the threads that runs through the book is the breakdown of my marriage. And in Ireland, we don't really talk a lot out loud about that, mm-hmm. you know. So I've had messages from people saying, you've articulated something that I don't know how to talk about or you've mirrored some of my experience. And... 
I had a message from a friend of mine who's a solicitor and she doesn't work in family law, but she said she was going to buy it for her colleagues in family law because she said that she feels that they don't receive any training in the heartbreak, the, the you know, the trauma. It, they're doing the practical stuff, which is the, you know, the undoing of the contract, mm-hmm. you know, um, the making of a new contract for the future, which is the divorce contract, I suppose. Um, and she said she felt it was really important for family law practitioners to maybe understand something about what happens in people's heads what it feels like, you know. And again, as you said, it, it is laying everything quite bare. So I suppose I'm interested in, you know, did you run it by your ex-husband before it, it was published or other family members that are mentioned? How did you approach that? So the people that I spoke to um, were the kids. So the kids were most important and the kids said, you you write your story, mum. So they were on board. Um, I realised that in order to tell my story and write this particular book, I had to not ask anyone's permission. Mm, okay. Memoir is really tricky. Yeah. Memoir is not easy to write. And um, anyone who has ever written memoir will say that, you know. I think the only thing you can do is know and um, will understand, first of all, like what the voice of it is you know, and own that voice, you know. Um, and really for me, the book is an attempt to um, articulate, unravel, pull apart and then maybe put together again some really difficult experiences but it is always through the lens of my own experience so it's my perspective and one of the threads that runs through the book is also that idea that there's always more than one perspective there's always more than one person in every story you know and all this book can do is 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 tell my story and that's that's what it does and was it cathartic but loads of people have asked me about this cathartic thing, you know, and I kind of rail against that idea, you know, <laughs> like, it's, you know, um, it sounds too simple and pat, you know, I'll say what it really was for me. There's been a lot of stuff going on over many years, not just the years of my marriage breaking down, but things even going back to when I was a kid writing and trying to win those competitions for my writing and how I felt about myself in terms of whether I was good at writing or not, you know. So that all of that predates my marriage and, and it's all about sort of the formation of who I am, you know. And one thing that I really feel about the book and, you know, you said, am I, am I happy with it, you know, Um I'm really happy with the feeling that I can put it down somewhere. It's like I have put, I have really um, explored and and looked into and tried to, like what I do when I look at a piece of art, I look under it and around it and over it. I look at the edges of things. Like I try to see how it was framed. And, you know, um, I really wanted to look at this from loads of angles and then be able to put shape on it and put it down. And it feels to me like this book contains something like that for me. So cathartic isn't the right word in a way because we're all processing everything all the time, you know, and and figuring out who we are. But there's a description in the book of a painting that my mum did of me when I was a little girl. I'm sitting beside a stream. Um, And I I think when I'd finished it and not until it was actually published, did I realise that there are lots of ways in which this book is an attempt at me attempting to understand how that little girl got here to where she is now, you know. And so in that way, it's definitely a memoir, you know, um, but it's not my whole life and it's not my whole story, but it's, it's one story about me. How do you feel then about other people reviewing your work on the basis that that's what you do on a day to day basis? Yeah, that's great fun, isn't it? I mean, I think that's <laughs> I see. I really respect the practice of criticism, arts criticism. I think that without really robust um, uh, professional arts criticism, especially appearing in the mainstream media, we don't have a properly functioning society like we need that. We need critical thinkers. We need analysis, you know, and we need the naysayers as much as 
the champions. We need people saying this book was rubbish. It didn't do it for me. Look at the problems with the structure. Look at all this. You know, I respect that totally. So I, I, I'm excited. I mean, obviously, anybody reviewing your work, you're nervous, right? That's that's how it is. But I'd be a total hypocrite if I didn't say that, <laughs> that I was delighted for people to review it. So, you know, it's had a good response. But I would I, I do think it comes back to the idea of professional criticism. You know, um, I really believe that if you can establish um, a reputation for yourself as a professional critic, people come to respect your work and your practice, even if they don't agree with your point of view. And that's another thing. I might write something about an exhibition and be really critical of it. And you might be able to say, well, I respect your practice, but I don't agree with you. Now, the artist mightn't feel the same, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and I know that. But again, you can't ask anyone's permission. You know, you have to do your job. And and that that's been my job, you know, to try and do that. Um, So, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading reviews of it. I want to hear what people think about it, actually. And what are you working on at the moment? Is there another another work out there for you? Yeah, there's a few things going on. I mentioned in the book that I went away to the Tyrone Guthrie Centre at one point to work on something. And that's um, a work of historical fiction. Um, it's a it's a biofiction and it's been pending for ages and I really want to write it. Um, it would be another short book because I love the idea of a book you can read on a single train journey. That's or maybe my, in forty five minutes. Like your forty five. If you're yeah. a real speed reader, <laughs> drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. Christine Leach, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books, and you'll find Christine's book online or at your local bookshop now. And of course, you can read her every week in the Sunday Times. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I or E. Inside Books is a unique media production with research by Amy Wynn. And if you'd like to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or a view. I'm Brita Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production.